The greatest guy in the Bible doesn't utter a single word, at least not that we have recorded. Joseph, Joseph had a surprise handed to him, to say the least. <laughs> Joseph was engaged to Mary, and it's safe to say that he was excited to marry Mary. And then all of a sudden, Mary is like, so Joseph, I've got some news. Um, I know you and I have kind of kept our appropriate distance uh, during this betrothal period, but uh, <laughs> I'm having a baby. Ah. <laughs> and oh, it's not what you think. It's from God. <laughs> and Joseph had a mind, had a mind to do what, what was perfectly well within his rights to do, break off the engagement and leave Mary to suffer the shame of having been unfaithful to her fiancé. But the scriptures tell us that, that Joseph was an honorable man, and so he was going to break things off discreetly and quietly so as to invite as little shame and condemnation on Mary as possible. But then an angel of the Lord visits him in his dream and says to him, here's the thing, I know it's crazy, but Mary is telling you the truth. She is with child from God, and you are to name him Jesus. Joseph's plans not only get changed, to say the least, but he's told that he needs to be the adoptive father of the Son of God. And he doesn't even get to name the boy. A point of pride for every first century dad was, was that you had the right to name your children, especially your firstborn son. You had the right to name that child, but, but Joseph is told what to name him. You gotta name him Jesus. And so what does Joseph do? Well, Matthew tells us, Joseph did this. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He rejected his own plans in favor of what the Lord commanded. He set aside his own wants and needs and desires in favor of what Mary needed, in favor of what loving and serving this baby Jesus would require. And in doing so, he became the picture in the scriptures and perhaps throughout all of history of what it means to be a good guy. Today we are continuing a teaching series that we've been in for the last few weeks um, where we have been trying to, to give the men of, of, of our church a new vision of what it means to be a man made in the image of God for the good of others. We've been trying to, to give the guys of the church, the church and those who cheer them on a fresh picture of what it means to be a man made by God in this world. Because as we know, that picture, that image is, is rapidly changing all around us and a lot of guys, if you haven't figured it out yet, are standing here thinking, who, who am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to do? What is my job in this world? Am I good? Am I bad? What good am I in this place? And we're trying to answer that question. And for us, it's come down to talking about uh, what we believe are five marks of a biblical masculine identity. And we said that the first mark was the mark of faith. A God-made man is one who is deeply dependent upon the work of Jesus. And last week we said that the second mark was the mark of health, specifically that you, you are aware of and take ownership over your issues, your baggage. And today we are talking about the third mark, which is responsible. A God-made man is faithful, he is healthy, and he is responsible. Responsible in the sense that he, he takes ownership 
over the well-being of others. There's a professor at New York University named Scott Galloway. And Scott has been doing a lot of writing and teaching, lecturing on the issue of, of masculinity in the modern era. He's just fascinated by, by, by how much men are struggling in today's day and age to know who they are and, and what they're supposed to be and what it means to be a, a healthy male in the modern world. He's written a bunch of books. He's, he's given a ton of lectures. I, I encourage you to check it out. And in one recent interview, Scott Galloway was pressed, he was pressed by the interviewer to define the essence of masculinity, to give a, a one-sentence definition of what it means to be faithful as a biological male to the way in which you were designed. And, and, and Galloway wrestled, he really wrestled. You can see him in the interview really go back and forth, back and forth, until finally he leans into the interviewer and he says, if I had to summarize it, I would summarize it like this. Masculinity means, means using your strength to protect others, period. In his studies and his learnings and his wrestling, it all for him boils down to that. Now, a Professor Galloway is not a follower of Jesus or a Christian as far as I know, but, but I would say that his definition of what it means to be a faithful man is in line with much of what we see in the scriptures. It really is. It, it comes down to, to caring for the well-being of others, using whatever strength you have, whatever skill you have, to take ownership over the flourishing and the thriving of the people around you, often, if not always, at cost to yourself. It's a key part of being a healthy and faithful man. Now, let, let, let's assume that that's true that a key mark of a biblical masculine identity is taking ownership over the well-being of others, using whatever strength and skill you have to bless someone other than yourself, to look out for their needs. Let's, let's assume that that's true. Uh, what I would offer to you that in order for a guy to hold that truth in his two hands, there is something else that he has to let go of and let die that he is very tempted to hold on to. There is, within the heart of every man, a, a boyish narcissism, a childish self-centeredness that longs to say, it's all about me. It's all about me. And in order for you to embrace the calling, to use your strength, whatever it is, to bless and serve the people around you, you have to let go and set aside this, this boyish narcissism, this childish self-centeredness that every man from the womb wrestles with. There's a famous sociologist named David Gilmore. In the early 90s, uh, Gilmore published like this, this seminal sociology book about masculinity. He had done surveys of, of different tribes, different groups, different families, different cultures around the world, looking at rites of passage from boyhood to manhood. And he, he found common themes and common threads that exist in the journey from boyhood to manhood throughout these different cultures that he looked at. He looked at everything from tribes in Africa to street gangs in Spain to families in the suburbs of Houston and New York. And among the many things he found to be common in all of these cultures about the journey from boyhood to manhood was this. He said, among many other things, that 
The journey towards true masculinity throughout culture comes down to a boy's ability to let go of his mother, sorry mom, let go of dependence upon his mother and embrace independence for the sake of others. The essence of the journey from boy to man is letting go of a passive boyish dependence upon another and laying hold of an independence for the sake of others. And he says that throughout cultures, the mark of immaturity is an unwillingness to let go of that dependence upon the family of origin. That, that men, men will grow up and they'll move out and they'll have a family of their own, they'll have a job of their own, but they can still be immature because they still see the world as revolving around them and they view every relationship and opportunity through the lens of, I need the world to mother me. I need the world to care for me, look out for me, nurture me. Not that there's anything wrong with being cared for and nurtured, guys. But, but it's another thing to say the whole world is potentially a mom to me. And Gilmore says the essence of masculinity is taking a journey from that passive boyhood that is dependent upon others and stepping into independence for the sake of others. I, I learned this the hard way when Lisa and I were, were married really early on. I've told this story before, but it was a... It was a it was a light bulb moment for me to say the least. Our first fight, our first fight as a married couple was a, was, was a doozy. And you know what it was over? It was over socks on the floor. I, I had this habit from, from when I was a little kid. End of the day, I sit on the couch and I peel off my socks and I drop them there. And I don't know how it happens, but when I would get up the next morning, they were never there. And so I never thought about it. I never, ever thought about it. And then all of a sudden, we're married for like three weeks, and I'm just doing my thing. End of the day, I'm like, ah, peel that off. <sighs> Boom, drop it. And then three weeks into my marriage, I get my wife coming to me, and she's got like tears in her eyes, and she's like, Matt, we need to talk. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what's happening? This seems serious. What do we need to talk about? And she holds up a pair of socks. And I look at her and go, oh, thank you. <laughs> And she's got tears in her eyes, and she says one sentence to me, and the light bulb came on. She said to me, Matt, I am not your what? Mother. That was it. Yeah. And I was like, are you sure? Because part of me would really like it to be. <laughs> That was a learning moment for me, a significant learning moment for me. But it is, it is a key part of the journey from, from boyhood to manhood. You have to make this transition from passive dependence upon the world around you as if though it's your mother to independence for the sake of others. That's the shift. You even see this in Genesis chapter 2. This is talked about. These words are then also later quoted by Jesus himself. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. This is how God describes marriage, but also the journey of a man. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
This is often used to describe marriage, but, but it's secondarily about marriage. It is first and foremost about the journey of a man. The journey of a man in God's design is from dependence upon the family that you came from, seeing yourself as a recipient of those blessings, to independence and interdependence upon a life of your own that you build, where they depend on you. They depend on you. It's from passive life as a boy to a life of caretaking for others, honestly, like we see in Jesus. I know we, I just made much of Joseph, but, but, but man, that boy that he raised was something else, wasn't he? Jesus is the, the truest man in, in every possible sense. Jesus is the true man. He, he is the true responsible man and sacrificial leader. You want to know what it looks like to live for the well-being of others? Look at Jesus Christ. We confess all the time that, of course, Jesus Christ is God in flesh and God's own son, but, but Jesus is also the Lord of the church. He is the leader of, of this family that exists throughout time and eternity. He, he has been God's own son for all time. But, but he became the leader, was crowned as the leader of the church through a specific series of acts. How did Jesus become the leader of the family that is the church? Did he come to the church and say, hey, I need you to look at my credentials. I am God's own son. Listen to me. Let me lead you. Let me be responsible for you. No. Uh, did he just show up and have some some display of his strength. Look at how amazing I am. You should let me lead and you should let me be responsible for your well-being. No. How did Jesus become crowned as the leader of the church? He, that's exactly right. By serving, he stepped forward in weakness and offered his whole life as a sacrifice and said, I see what the need is. I see what the pain is. I offer my whole existence as an offering to help meet that need and heal that hurt. And then he's pinned upon a cross for the sins of the world. He's rejected as though he's done the worst in the world. And he dies for the sins of the world in order to save the world. And he rises out of that grave to which he willingly went. went and the world looks at Jesus and says, you, you love us more than anybody. And, and now we, we trust you more than anyone. Look at what you've done for us. You've given it all for us. And, and that, that, men, men, that is the picture of what it means to be a true man. And Paul makes that point in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is uh, giving some explicit direction about uh, life as a man, life as a woman. And then in the last half of Ephesians chapter 5, he's talking about what means to be a married man and a married woman, and he's trying to help guys in particular understand what it means to love and to lead, to be responsible for the well-being of people around you. They're very famous words. If you're married, they were probably read at your wedding. It says, men, you should love your wives as your dad loved your mom. No. Uh, you, you should love your wives as, as Harry loved Sally. Uh, you should love your, lives as, your, your wives as what? As Christ loved the church. 
Well, how does Christ love the church? Does he remind the church every day? I'm responsible, I'm in charge, you should listen to me. <laughs> no. How does he love the church? He dies for it, he bleeds for it. He sees the problem and says, I'll shed blood to solve it. I'll lay down my whole life on the tracks in front of the train called sin and death and I will be crushed for it. I know the need and I love you and I give my whole life to meet that need and to love and to serve you. That's what Jesus does. And Paul says, guys, get the picture? That's what it means for you to be faithful. And, and ladies, I don't want to go out on too far of a limb here, but I think I have a sense of, of how you feel about this. If, if, you, if you have a, a man in your life who is looking at you and, and, and you know that, that he gets up every morning and his, the posture of his heart, the instinct of his soul is to, is to know what you and the other people in your tribe need and you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that he's willing to die to meet that need. Are you going to have any trouble trusting him, encouraging him, and asking him to be responsible? Any trouble at all? No. Because you know he's not in it for him. He's in it for you. That's the picture of what it means to be a good guy. Now, ladies, I, I understand that, that as we talk about this, as I, as I say, hey, a, a mark of a biblical masculinity is to take responsibility over the well-being of others and, and to, be, to indeed be a leader, but be a, a sacrificial, serving leader, that 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 comes with some baggage, understandably. And, and it may even make you nervous, like, oh my gosh, here we go, we're gonna just place the guys up here and everybody else down here. I, 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 to I totally get it. And, 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 and that is an understandable reaction because th th this call to be responsible has been so often abused. And I, I don't want to overlook that, it has been. But what I'm seeing is that the great, the great problem right now in the lives of so many men is not, is not so much that they are, they are abusing that invitation to be responsible in that they are being overbearing, but, but many men are just forsaking it and forgetting it altogether. And, and they are far more attuned to their fantasy football lineup or they are far more attuned to the ups and downs of the market, or they are far more attuned to making sure the latest objects of their obsession get into their Amazon cart and get delivered to the house as a surprise to you. They are far more attuned to indulging those things than caring about the necessary things. And very often when they do notice your needs, the needs of the kids, the needs of others, it's because you've had to harass them into it and then you go around feeling like the bad guy. That's more often the problem. And, and what I'm trying to do is help guys see like there, there is a more satisfying, more fulfilling way to live that is actually deeply ingrained in you that leads to a life of not only blessing the people around you, your friends and your family, because you're giving your whole life for their flourishing, but actually leads to tremendous satisfaction and purpose and joy for you. 
guys, there are, there are three core areas of concern that you should have for the people around you, that you are invited to have. And these are all painfully obvious, yet easily overlooked. The three areas of concern for the people around you, things that you should be aware of, mindful of, wondering about, curious about, are safety, security, and spirituality. Safety, security, and spirituality. Uh, safety is, is this, it's, it's a posture towards the people that you love that says, how might I leverage my strength and my skills to protect the people around me? Not in a domineering way, not in a paternalistic way, but in a sacrificial way. Whatever strength, whatever skill I have, how can I use it to protect the well-being of the people around me? That's a posture of the heart of, of good guys. It's also about security. It's, it's a posture of the heart that says, how can I use the, the strength and the skills that I have to make sure that the deepest needs are met of the people around me? What are those needs? And is there anything I can do within my power to, to help meet those needs, not in a paternalistic way, not in a domineering way, but in a humble and, and sacrificial way? Uh, but it's also this. How can I use my strengths and my skills to make sure that the people around me are attached to, connected to the promises of Jesus. You, you don't want to know the easiest way to make an impact spiritually in your home? Gentlemen? Be the first in the car. Don't make your wife wonder on Saturday if you're going to join her Sunday because she is wondering. But she doesn't want to ask, because she doesn't want to be a nag. And she doesn't want to be a have to. She wants you to see it as a get to. And you can take that burden off of her by on Saturday or Friday saying, hey, I'm thinking like the, probably the nine o'clock service is best for us this week. And then she'll go, <laughs> sure, sure, absolutely, yeah, sure. Nine o'clock, I was thinking the same thing. What's happened to my husband? It's, it's often, it, it starts simply like that. And, and yes, can this sense of responsibility, can, can it be abused? Yes. Can it be done paternalistically and, and, and abusively? It absolutely can. And if that happens, we, we repent and we ask for forgiveness, but we don't forsake the call to care for the well-being of others. And along the way, it's about, it's about praying a simple prayer like this. As a guy, in your sphere of influence, Lord, give me the eyes to see the need and the heart to own it. Man, if you, if you take any prayer from today, any little nugget from today, let it be that prayer. You walk through the world, especially as you look at the people that you love, and you say, Lord, give me the eyes to see the need and the heart to own it humbly. The heart to help humbly. Man, if that, if that is spinning inside of your heart on a daily basis, you are well on your way to being the man you were made to be. Now, guys, I know that there are lots of reasons why we, we struggle with this. Uh, we, we struggle with this for a number of reasons. Number one, we live in a day and age where very often uh, the, the hand of a guy gets slapped when, when he tries to kind of step forward and say, 
can, can I lead? Can I, can I be the responsible one? Can, can, I, can I do this? Can I be fully engaged? We get a message, maybe not from the people at home with us, but, but from the culture around us, that, that the way to be a good guy is to step back, not to step forward. The way to be a good guy is to shut up, not speak up. You've had your turn. That, that is very often the message that we get. And, and, and it's so damaging in so many ways to to the understanding of the self for a man. And I, I don't want to take anything away from, from some of the advances that we've made over the last 50 years, the way things have changed, the new understandings that we have. So many wrongs have been righted. So many things have been fixed. It is so much better now than it used to be. But, but I hope some can understand that when we, when, we, when, we, when we deconstruct the essence of what it means to be a man and we take away this notion of, of protecting in any capacity, providing in any capacity, caring and being engaged in any capacity, men are often left standing in the back going, what, what in the world am I supposed to do? And we have crafted a world in many ways, in a good way, but we have crafted a world where women and children don't need men. In some ways, we're better off for it. But perhaps along the way, we have forgotten the fact that men need women. And that, that we need to be needed by them and by the people around us as part of how we are wired and we are created. I'm just saying. But I think the biggest reason you and I struggle with this, guys, if you're anything like me, is it's not just because the culture is so confusing, but because you and I are, are so afraid, and I mentioned this in week one, we're so afraid of being foolish. It's the same reason we don't dance at weddings or sing karaoke. We, we don't want to put ourselves out there and feel dumb. We don't want to be like, oh, I'll be responsible, I'll care, I'll notice the need, and then, and then, and then be a jerk. We, we don't want to do that, and so often we step back. And, and if you wrestle with that at all, of like, I don't want my wife to think I'm an idiot, or I don't want to do it the wrong way, I just want you to redefine failure, okay? Think of it in terms of like a soldier. Is a soldier a failure if, if he or she runs out into the battlefield, gets shot, and loses their life? No. You know the only way to be a failure as a soldier is to refuse to leave the bunker and enter the field of battle. That's failure. And so in your effort to avoid failure, you're actually welcoming it. You need to remember that the God who has wired you this way and, and, and called you to, to live this way will also equip you with the spirit that is promised to you as his baptized, forgiven child, and, and he will not abandon you. And he's proven to you how much he loves you through Jesus Christ. You're, you're not going to be left alone. He, he has proven his love for you in Jesus Christ. And, and not only that, you may think that in the end you're going to be judged for how you measure up as a man when it comes to responsibility and ownership or the well-being of others. But the truth is, Jesus has already been judged for you. Jesus was judged on the cross and he rose out of that grave and now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The measure of a man is not how you measure up as a man. If you are a man in Jesus Christ, the measure of a man is Jesus Christ and he is more than enough and he covers you. And so you do not have to fear about being found, being found at fault, 
being found foolish in the very end. Will you screw it up? Yes. Will you mess it up? Yes. Will there be multiple times we need to repent for socks on the floor? Oh, oh, oh yes. Last week, yes. But in the end, you will be judged faithful because Christ was faithful and gave his faithfulness to you. So now you are set free to dive into the man that you are called to be. Embrace the responsibility of being accountable for the well-being of others through self-sacrifice. It's so crazy to me that, like, for my money, the greatest guy in the scriptures, apart from Jesus, never utters a word. He just shows up. He doesn't say anything. He just does the right things. And his name is Joseph. And for 2,000 years, people have been enamored at his responsibility in the face of just unbelievable circumstances. He is faithful. But maybe you didn't know this about Joseph. He can be found today buried in the front yard of millions of homes. Did you know that? People have revered Joseph since Joseph was born. (laughs) Uh, Certainly since he took up the call to help raise Jesus. In the late 1800s, the then Pope of the Catholic Church, Pope Pius, he named Joseph, Saint Joseph, as the caretaker of the Roman Catholic Church. And he was named the patron saint of workers and families. You know why? Because Joseph showed up and cared for that first family. He showed up and he, he fought for the well-being of that home. And so, and so the Pope said, he's going to show up and he's going to fight for the church. And he's the kind of guy that you can depend on. And so people then took that and they took little statues and they're like, how can I get this guy to help me and my home? Because he's that kind of guy. And they started to take him and like bury him upside down in their home and many times in their their front yard, and people still do this today when they want to sell their house in a tough market. I kid you not. Now, I bring this up not because I'm condoning it at all. We, 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 do, not, we do not reverence the saints here at St. Mark. We do not. And we certainly don't condone taking little trophies and trinkets and burying them like they're good luck in your yard. Not at all. What I'm saying to you is that people have long had respect for Joseph and for good reason, although expressed in strange ways. They've had respect for Joseph because he, in the moment of responsibility, answered the call. And for millennia, people, when they think of that guy, they have said, that's a guy who will care for me. And I got to respect that. And gentlemen, hear me when I say this. That is the greatest compliment that anyone can give you that when they think of you, they believe that you will think of and care for and love them. May that be true of you. May that be said of you. More next week. Amen.